Mr. Beast. So the biggest YouTuber in, in the world, I think. So we sponsored him in 2018. And our head of marketing gave him his first $10,000. For 10 years, we were in the uh, zero interest rate policy era, right? And that was, an, and now you look back, you're like, man, wish we had those years back. Didn't know how good it was. They're not coming back, I think. Those, that era is just not going to come back. I was no spring chicken. I'm 46 and I was 38 when I started current. And I'd hit that midlife crisis thing where most people buy cars like Ferraris or whatever. And I decided to do a startup. Hello, everyone, and welcome to FinTech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows so more people can learn about fintech leaders. My guest today is Stuart Sopp, CEO and co-founder at Current one of the largest New York fintech platforms offering financial services to U.S. consumers. Launched in 2015, Current serves almost 4 million customers and is backed by Andreessen Horowitz, Tiger, TQ Ventures, Avenir, Sapphire Ventures, Foundation Capital, Wellington, QED, and many more. We recorded this conversation live in the heart of New York City at Barclays Rise as part of a series of events during New York Tech Week. We discussed launching Current and why it took so many iterations and two pivots to eventually land on Current's present state, the importance of balancing growth and tech development in periods of hyper-growth, why Stuart believes we've entered the era of value for fintech and what this means for founders launching companies these days, what he's learned working with Mr. Beast and many other influencers, why New York City is the best place to start a fintech company, and a lot more. All right. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. And especially thank you to the current team and thank you to Stuart. So just by show of hands, how many founders do we have in the room? I mean, it's a good number. And how many aspiring founders? All right. <laughs> so clearly we have a lot of people in the room who have taken the, the leap to start building others who are thinking about it, and maybe some don't even know that they will be doing in the future. I want to talk about specifically when you did it, because, you know, to say it, I don't know how to say it, but you were not a spring chicken. So you had some very meaningful experience. You, you were pretty senior at Morgan Stanley. You had worked all over the world. You know, should people wait a little bit into their careers or should they do it earlier? And, and what did you learn, you know, doing it after already having a career? That's a really good question. Thank you for having me here today. And it's nice to see everyone. Hopefully I can add some value. Uh, it's whatever you're trying to find today. Thank you. 
I was no spring chicken. I'm 46 and I was 38 when I started current. And I'd hit that midlife crisis thing where most people buy cars like Ferraris, whatever. And I decided to do a startup. So I don't know, maybe that's the new midlife crisis. And so where I came from was 16 years of trading in big banks like Morgan Stanley, City, Deutsche, those kind of places. Got to live in a bunch of different countries. So I'm British and I have a funny accent because I lived in obviously London, Sydney, Singapore, Hong Kong, and then moved here to New York with Morgan Stanley, co-headed a bunch of stuff, ran North America Foreign Exchange. And I also did that in, in, in Asia out of Hong Kong. So I had this career of moving money around. And it's not super useful. I don't think it was net negative, but it wasn't sort of, you know, super useful. Making rich people richer is probably the way I'd describe my previous life. And so I hit like midlife crisis level and it's Bitcoin really is the, if I'm to be totally honest, is we can maybe talk about that, but Bitcoin white paper, someone hands it to me on the trading floor of Morgan Stanley in 2011. So it's two years old, maybe even two years old, right? Might not just be two years then. So super, super early. And my background is aeronautical engineer, did master's in aeronautical engineering. Very English thing is to do like something over there at college and you end up over there, right? Other than doctors and lawyers maybe, but pretty much it's common to do. And ask you something about it. What compelled you to read that paper? Because I also got my hands around 2011. I did not read it. What compelled me was Trevor Marshall, who's the co-founder and CTO of Current. But he wasn't then. The interesting thing was he was 20 years old, an intern on Morgan Stanley's trading desk, which was mine. And so he hands me this paper. He goes, this is a white paper. You've got to read this. It's like a phenomenal new thing. And I said, that sounds interesting. It's about time for lunch. Maybe we should think about what we're getting the team for lunch rather than reading this boring white paper. This is a different era, remember. And so he gets lunch and comes back and goes, have you read it? I'm like, no, I haven't read this thing. It's like too big. It actually, it wasn't that big for a white paper. It was, it was fairly succinct, but complex. And so anyway, about a, a day or two later, it's on my desk and I read it. And it was like the epiphany, everything is going to change. So we went from digital money which is we've had digital money since we came off the gold standard. I'm sure you've read all the books and all the things and heard about Nixon do all these things. So we came off the gold standard to digital fiat money in the 70s. And this was this invention of programmable money. And I thought that was really interesting. Like you could program money. And also the fact that it wasn't top-down, centralized, it was decentralized, it was around the world. You could potentially lower the barriers to entry of finance and banking to everyone in the world. And I thought that was pretty cool. And being a foreign exchange trader, I thought you could make a lot of money <laughs> trading all the inefficiencies between all the countries, right? The, the statistical arbitraging that you could do. And so that's what got me interested. And so I was like, huh, this could be like maybe trading and like consumer fintech or bank. It wasn't called fintech land, but consumer stuff had like a Venn diagram. Maybe you could, could go through the middle of that. And you thought you were going to build a DeFi company at the beginning I'm sure everyone knows here, but decentralized finance, and that very much is at, at the heart of of the Bitcoin crypto revolution. But that's not what happened. You know, you, you say that you were a little bit too early. Yeah, way too early. So we're buying a Bitcoin, trading Bitcoin, going to the compliance in Morgan Stanley, and they're like, "What's Bitcoin? It's not on our asset sheet." They like check the sheet, and they're like, "It's not on there." I'm like, "No, it's not on there. It's like a year old. Like we're just, you know," and so. When I, I resigned and left Morgan Stanley, I think 2013, 2014, someone, you'd think I know that date, but it's around there. And I was like, I want to get into this. I want to get into this crypto thing, decentralized banking and currencies. 
And I think there's a massive overlap between all those things. And so as I'm driving forward on that, we're setting up an exchange at the same time as Coinbase. This is a story not many people know. So there was an actual crypto exchange started here in New York at the same time as Coinbase. Ben Lorsky, there's any lawyers in here, he enacted and deployed the bit license here in New York. So that got closed down very quickly. We're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to do this in 2014. And so we have all this tech that we've been building, which basically did statistical arbitrage between a bunch of exchanges, Mt. Gox and all these other ones. And we're like, okay, let's create a hedge fund. Right? We got this tech, we were going to build it for this exchange. And so we start folding it into a hedge fund. I start meeting people to raise money for this hedge fund. So the second crypto hedge fund made in the country. Pantera was number one. And as I'm meeting people, I'm finding myself explaining what crypto is more than what it will do. I think you probably still do that if you've got parents or elderly people, you know, you're sort of explaining more like, what is it? What does it do rather than the outcome? And so that was fairly frustrating. And then I met a guy called Garrett Camp, who's the co-founder of Uber. You've ever heard of that company? And he just, you know, rehired or hired Travis at the time. Uber was doing okay in 2014, 15. And he was here in New York. So through mutual friends, he was interested in decentralized banking as well. And so I got introduced to, to Garrett at dinner and he says, what does it do, this hedge fund that you're building? I said, well, it wasn't really a hedge fund. We started off way over here and like, because of compliance and legal was sort of here. And I said, well, it just makes money. It's not really interesting, is it? And I was like, not for you. <laughs> you're doing really well. He says, well, what does it do for the customer? What does it do for people? And I said, well, I could see this world in which you could layer on banking services and all the things I've just mentioned, lowering the barriers to entry to financial services. And it could be really robust because it's like outside of all governmental sort of oversight, not in the bad way, but in, in, in the non sort of terrifying Ponzi way. And he said, I'd invest in that. That's a company that sounds interesting. So in those days, VC is probably a little bit different. <laughs> wasn't a lot of diligence going on. He said, I'll give you $2 million and I'll give you the offer on Friday. I think it was just Tuesday. And I was like, okay, I've got to think about this. <laughs> I've never built a company before. And so I had about three days to work out. He was the only person that kind of got it and then wanted to fund it. Not that I'd really tried. And so the hedge fund idea and the crypto exchange, which wasn't legal at the time here, yeah, sort of went away. And then so we're on this track of like lowering the barriers to entry to financial services through using Bitcoin and Ripple gateways. So take us through, you know, the moment where you really started to build this digital platform of financial services. And at some point you realized that your customers were, were pretty young and you realized that was, Kim said that you, you found product market fit when you realized those were your customers. You know, how did that work? How did that get a light bulb go on? Yeah. Again, more, this was coming through this journey, right? And so we go down this journey and realize that Bitcoin is not the network to build banking on top of, right? So explaining what Bitcoin is, it's very volatile. It's an asset. It is maybe digital gold, but it is not the thing you should potentially build payments on. And maybe Lightning Network right now is like changing that. So we're going down this thing, we're realizing, explaining what Bitcoin is. No one understands what we're doing. But the VC world is resonating with lowering the barriers to entry in financial services. They see all these massive corporate profits in banks. By the way, we just saw bank earnings on Friday. Really huge, right? Massive. Bigger getting bigger. And the, they have very low MPS scores. And so it's like for a VC, they're going, okay, 
if someone could disrupt this, there's a business in there and people are happier, right? And so that was resonating. We start ditching the crypto infrastructure because we couldn't physically, we just wouldn't work like in the way we wanted it to. And we were like, okay, let's build our own tech stack, verticalization, ledger, processor, CSD tools, all this stuff. Very, you can tell I didn't know what I was doing because we were just like, we could do it all, right? There's a reason why people don't do it all. <laughs> so, and so we're building this thing and we realize when you start from scratch and you build brand new technology, you don't have a lot of capabilities. You have very few capabilities. And so we were like, okay, low collateralization. No one really wants them. Low MPS score, teens, teenagers. That's the thing that we could provide banking services for because we didn't have the capability, but it resembled the end state of where we wanted to be. We thought if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you didn't have a lot of money, you collateralized in funny ways, or it didn't look like a normal monthly paycheck of someone who was more affluent. We could probably get going in teams, prove a bunch of stuff out, build the old tech stack at the same time, and then roll into the target market later on. Of course, five years later, we get there, right? I thought this was a year <laughs> at most. And so we launched with a, a team banking product with our brand that we knew full well was not meant to be focused on the teen market. And so we've had you know, various incarnations and iterations of our brand that has grown with the technology and the capabilities that we have built over time. Stuart, I want to fast forward a little bit and talk about 2021. I, I saw... Uh, who was one of the founders of Carbon Health on Twitter, and they straight up said, in retrospect, every decision of 2021 was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm sure that's not the case for every company, but talk about some of the mistakes you've had al along the way, and it doesn't have to be 2021, it can be, but uh, it would be good to kind of hear of some of those lessons learned. So many, we've made so many mistakes, and I try and forget up, I think. 2021, yeah, I'm interested in what else that, that person did, the carbon health person. It sounds like that was quite the year, 2021 for him or her. Yeah, I think, oh man, there's just so many. I've done the, the traditional founder mistake of holding on to people who are not very good. I think everyone makes that mistake or toxic or whatever you want to call it. We should just, you know, move on with people if they're not happy. We should just do that. I think we did really, I, I'm tooting my own horn here, but we didn't over-raise and overvalue ourselves too much. We did a little bit because you got to be competitive, but we didn't do crazy stuff. So we didn't have any, you know, create touch wood, crazy down round sort of action. I don't know. I think, I think if you want, it's not a mistake because it's our advantage now, but we took a very different course to our competitors. So there's three, there's a million competitors, but three main ones in the private markets. There's Chime and Varo, and then you've got Cash App in the public markets. And Cash App went the P2P route, which was smart. We actually tried to do that in 2015. Another story, if you're ever interested, got shut down by some investors. And so we were always early. I'm always told I'm early, but like, you know, good. And then Chime started two years before us on traditional rails, and they just went full ahead with acquiring customers as quickly as possible. And they didn't care about the tech. In fact, they just plugged into existing incumbent tech and only focused on the unit economics and the acquisition uh, and the sort of green fields that was ahead. So that's a play and it's worked out for them, right? Varo went the bank license route. And so I wouldn't have done that personally. And so that's up to them and their, their strategy. And so for us, we went the tech route. Now, we're at the stage where we're scaling 
and scaling back into scaling again. But we missed out on some of those years of like cheaper CACs and really good unit economics against Chime. And there was a period in time where we were really close to them, right? And so they just kept going ahead, but we kept building tech. So if I wanted my time again, I would have gone, hold off on like the really fancy stuff. We're good here. Let's get growing and then go back into the tech. I think I would have staged it out. So we have the best tech in FinTech, right? We do have it. We do have it. But at the end of the day, a business is about cash flow. How much money do you make? So obviously there's mistakes, but there's things that you get right. For founders, you know, that's probably one of the toughest things, making decisions today with current information to set up the company for success for the future, right? What's your internal process to you know, decide your strategy, to launch new products, to set the company direction? It's changed over time. So in the early days, we would be me just saying, that's pretty cool. We should probably do that. And then testing it out. No joke. Yeah. It is that funny. <laughs> um, so not the best strategy in that way, but when you're small and you need to make quick decisions, there were informed reasons why we did things. And then you sort of over cater to the, like the red tape, right? The bureaucracy, you get all the PMs in, you do the bottom up, the W, you go top down, bottom up, and then you hear everyone and you ch then you make a roadmap and it makes total sense. And then you start that roadmap. And then as you're going down you're like, nah, come on, we gotta, come on, let's do something more fun. We gotta, you gotta move the needle here. So you can go both ways on that strategy. You can be too light and too top down, which doesn't give people context. There's no buy-in they have, you know, there's, that can be bad. And then on the other side, you're just too bottom up and you have too much input from people who don't have strategic context as either. And like they're saying, hey, well, this little thing in front of me is the most important thing. And then you don't get the big swings. And so it, there is a balance and a process. Some of it is like you have to pick a direction and then you have process to like fix the other side of that direction. And so you have to pick a lane, I think. And so we have always flirted with both of them. And we're at this area where we're like mostly top down for strategy. We'll li obviously listen to everyone. I think that's why I'm paid and some of the execs are paid for that strategy and like informed strategy. We obviously have customer research. We do a ton of interviews, surveys. We read a lot. We talk to a lot of people and we also have really, really good data. So we can work out what people think they want and also what they actually want. Those two things are two different things. Related to your strategy, you've said that we are now in the era of value for fintech. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I think for 10 years, we were in the uh, zero interest rate policy era, right? And that was, an, and now you look back, you're like, man, wish I had those years back. Didn't know how good it was. They're not coming back, I think. Those, that era is just not going to come back. And so that was the anomaly. And so we're going back to what it always used to be, which is cost of money. There's a cost of money and there's a hurdle rate and everyone has to go and beat it. And also you have to have a business from basically scratch, right? From the seed A, you actually have to start making real money. In the zero interest rate policy world, you were punished for holding on to money. And so growth was just gangbusters because people are like, even like you saw in Europe, for example, they would literally take money away at the end of the month in like Switzerland and France. And you're just like, if you're a, um, an asset manager, you're just like, no, this is, I can't do the pension liability thing if it goes down every month. And so they were almost forced to take risk, right? And that risk was in a lot in the private markets and in venture. 
And so what that did was this venture is a tiny, tiny slither of assets, really globally. And it couldn't handle the volume. 20% of all VC dollars in 21 were fintech because it was a big enough TAM. Hopefully they make money and all that stuff. Just ruins the opportunity, ruins the market. So I think, yeah, I think zero interest rate is just not going to come back from my old macro days. I just, not in the foreseeable future. Maybe it does at some stage, but never say never. But the cost of money is here. And so what it means to be the the era of value is going back to what it used to be, which is you need a solid business from the ground up. Forget infinite money tree, right? Proof points are about making money. In fact, you've got to say to some extent in the old days, VCs were all about pouring gasoline on the fire. You remember that phrase? And it's basically, you've already got to, you didn't need them really, but like if you wanted to go really quick and like wanted to shave a couple of years off your plan, you go to a VC. I think we're going back there. I think this idea of VCs taking all this risk and punts and all that, that's probably gone away. Yeah, I remember for a long time, Ray Dalio used to say cash is trash. Yeah, he corrected that recently. Yes, I saw that. that. Uh, sorry, not, not at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how is current going to deliver that value? Because I, I know you, you're now starting to lean in more on credit products. And in, in financial services, that's how huge institutions are built, right? In our, a lot of cases through credit. Tell us about your journey to credit. Yeah, our target market is sub 625. It doesn't mean if you're on current, don't worry. You, or everyone's accepted. You can you, we bank anyone. But you've got to focus, right? And so why do we earn the right to exist other than trying to be cool? Is that a large part of America doesn't fit the business model of banking, meaning they don't have enough deposits to lend against and banks just don't really care for this demographic. And so there's an opportunity and it actually looks more like payments below 620, meaning you're spending more then in a month than you have in the bank account at the end of the month. So you have 200 bucks maybe left over in, in the bank account at the end of the month, but you've spent $1,800, right? That's a very different way around to more affluent people. And so it's a more payments focused business model rather than a NIM lending business model. And so banks really would have to change everything for that. So I get excited by what we're doing in terms of like that focus. There really you launched a secure credit card, is that, is that right? Yeah, so yeah, specifically onto lending, I guess. So we're not, lending becomes trickier for the target demo, right? The reason why Sub620 FICO is because either thin file, no file, something's happened. So traditional credit is very tough for the vast majority of Americans. And so what we've launched eight weeks ago is a build card, which is for the consumer, our customer, for all intents and purposes, looks like a checking account that builds credit, which is a really exciting product because you can just, you know, not really think about it. You don't need the deposit that you traditionally need for a credit building account. And you don't have to go through any bells and whistles. It's just like you get another card, your payroll's coming into the current account. You start swiping straight away and it builds credit. That's an amazing win for the customer. It's good for us because we get credit interchange for a business. So like our ARPU is going up, how much revenue we're making. We just launched earn wage access today to 500 users, which is basically $250 that you can get at any point between paychecks, which helps, you know, smooth the, smooth the bills or anything that's happened. The fridge, well, the HVAC blows up. Where'd you get the 250 if you're not eligible for a credit card? Everyone in this room, I'm sure just goes, yeah, I got a credit card. Vast majority of Americans, I think 38 million under 620 do not have that. And so providing these services, when I say credit, 
it's like, it's sort of outside of the credit, traditional credit system. Sometime next year, not that I'll, don't tell anyone I said this, but we'll probably go a little bit into the credit sort of journey, maybe like a installment loans or something like that. Curious if you're seeing any immigrants start to apply, because I, I personally, I remember when I first got here to the US, I, I applied to a bunch of cards, obviously got rejected from everywhere. Wonk Bank gave me a $200 secure credit line. There you go. Uh, and that's how I started building credit. F1 or Amex. Cap one. There you go. There's only two. There's only two that do it. I also had this experience. I came here from Hong Kong, worked to Morgan Stanley, as you will know now, tried to buy a house, actually. I was like, oh, looks like a good low 2012. Probably, you know, try and buy something. Couldn't get it. My credit was zero. It was that of someone who did financial fraud. And so every, even the banker that I worked in were like, oh, no, we can't give you a mortgage. Zero. <laughs> we got standards. You only run foreign exchange here. And I was like, all right. It's wild. Imagine that if you're not born into a system that slowly gets you into it, immigrant or not, you're kind of screwed, right? It's kind of like you're out of the system. You're out of like the system. So yeah, immigrants, hot topic. Thanks for asking in New York. So no, yes, we, we asked for social. So social is something, do you legally by the letter of the law need the social? Not really. When we've looked into it heavily, you don't really need it, but we work with issuing banks. So we work with three issuing banks who do want it, right? Because they don't want to take that risk. And so our issuing banks, we had one here in New York, one in North Dakota, one in South Dakota, and one in New Jersey. You can guess that one if you're in the business. It's over the river. And so they just require more standard identity metrics that you don't really need, right? So this banking of immigrants and, and banking people who are foreign students and things like this, there's still an opportunity but you may need like your own bank to do it. So switching gears a little bit, when we were talking about this before we got started, you in the past and even today have worked with a lot of influencers and there are founders both here and listening who have considered or are also going down this route. First of all, what have you learned? But also what do you recommend? Do you recommend working with some micro-influencer that has 10, 20,000 followers, maybe they're LinkedIn, maybe they have a fintech podcast, or do you recommend working with someone like Mr. Beast? Well, obviously Mr. Beast. So the biggest YouTuber in, in the world, I think. So we sponsored him in 2018. I want to get that right. Yeah, 2018. And our head of marketing gave him his first $10,000. So the first ever Mr. Beast video was Adam Hattie, gave him 10,000 through another company he was working at. And that started off this sort of, this viral thing of giving money to people who needed it, right? And so that kind of made him, so I think in one way he owed Adam a favor. I'd like to say that I spotted the fact that he had an, owed Adam a favor because he certainly wasn't doing big brand deals with anyone else. And so we got an exclusive for current with Jimmy Donaldson's his name for a few years. And so what I spotted then in 2018 was distributions, everything at the end of the day. And so the CPMs and influencer space were extremely cheap. They're not now, actually, not anymore. And they're not extremely cheap. They can be cheap. They're just not as cheap as they were. So we were like, I was like, I need to find someone who can do this. Let's double down on this play. And we became the financial brand for influencers. So 2018 to 2021, we're like on every video in YouTube, basically, you'll see. 
even to the point where a lot of these videos are global, right? So I'll just meet someone from, I don't know, Australia or Indonesia. And I'm like, oh, current. I know about you guys. I'm like, okay, we've, we've got some leakage on our CPM here. <laughs> money, money well spent. Money well spent. It's like just random people from around the world. And obviously, Jimmy Donaldson, Mr. Beast, excuse, heavily young, right? So we, as you know, had a team bank account. And so the reason why it was really hard for other people to monetize someone like him, other than if you could just afford it, right? If you're Morgan Stanley or City, you just pay him. doesn't matter. But we could actually really take advantage of the team products. So any CPMs for 18 to 35-year-olds, well, actually it was really 18 to 24-year-olds. They would all convert to payroll, be really good. That alone was good. But then the team product would capture everyone 13 to 18, which was really helpful for us because we had contribution positive on that as well. They'd have to ask their parents to sign up and all that stuff. And so that was a really good way of monetizing a very broad influencer. So I would, to answer your question, the, the higher, the, the sort of bro the broader and more global they are, the sort of more products you need to really make that work. And then smaller influencers, it's all about engagement anyway. You can have really big influence, like famous people with zero engagement, right? They just won't do anything. Some people like listen to them in, the, in some sense, but won't do something for them. And Jimmy's like this you know, freak of nature where he's the biggest YouTuber in the world and people jump through hoops. To, if he says do this, they'll all do it. Like a lot, which is dangerous. Yeah, it's amazing power that that guy has. And then when you get to the celebrity status, pick on, I don't know, The Rock or someone, I don't know, someone, right? They're huge. But if they say do something, more often than not, they don't, not everyone really does it, right? And so when you go to the micro-influencer level, they have much higher engagement per follower. Because they're trusted, they, people feel connected to the story, they may even know them. And so it's just a higher trust level when it comes to engagement there and influencing someone to do something. So you have to be very thoughtful about your strategy. It is not any, it's a much harder strategy than anything else in my view. So you've lived all over the world, different continents, cities, but you've decided to build in New York, which I always say is the global fintech capital of the world. And, you know, we're, we're recording right in the middle of it at Barclays Rise. So why, you know, first of all, why build in New York? And, and do you agree that it is the fintech capital of the world? Yeah, I couldn't stand San Fran. So that was <laughs> as honest. <laughs> Sorry if you're from, from the West Coast. But it's kind of true. I used to go out there. Anyway, I was a banker. I came here, you know, roots down here in New York multicultural, not just tech, it's just got everything, right? And so living here is great, right? Hiring people from around the world, very easy. You can do that in San Fran too, but it's very easy here too. Finance was massive here, right? Got banks, you got all these people. So if you ever did the FinTech thing and you needed a head of compliance, I think you can find it in New York. You might not find that in LA or in San Fran even. So Hiring people, access to talent, really important. The thing that New York didn't have was really like a very large VC community. And so in the early days, I was always flying out to San Fran. It was like this thing, right? So, but now that since COVID, it doesn't matter. But in the old days, San Fran used to require you to either go there or set up an office and just do the thing, right? Like, you know, they used to, the old adage of you used to have to walk from Sand Hill to the office, to the startup, they wouldn't invest in you. And there was some truth to that. And then finally, crypto. Crypto in 2011, 2012, 2013, 
you know, I got to meet all these great people, like the Winklevoss twins, got, you know, Vitalik, some people went to jail, like Shrem, you know, there was like, there were, there were like two paths people took from that era from New York. It was like ankle bracelet jail or billionaire. <laughs> And Trevor and I had neither, right? So I think we were the exception. We didn't quite hit the billion stuff. So some hit both. Some hit both. Yeah, actually, you good point. <laughs> it's a billion. It's still happening with Sam, right? So there we go. It was a really interesting time. So there was just access to talent. There were interesting things. I think New Yorkers, when it comes to finance and fintech, are just here. They're here to like play with money and to try and make like new solutions. And I don't think that's changed. So we're going to do one more question, then we're going to take couple of questions from the audience, but when I know that you, you like to, I'm not sure it's mental, but you know, you, you, you often give advice to emerging founders today, 2023, what seem to be the most common topics that, that get discussed, you know, with, with founders starting up? Yeah. It's more like, should I do it? And I get it. It's, it's a different environment, right? I've always said no one should ever do this so that I'm consistent in the bull market or the bear market. So it's an incredibly hard thing. It probably comes back to your first question, which I didn't answer is like, should you do it when you're older or younger? I just think it's, you know, you can take more risk. I took more risk because I was financially independent at like 38, right? I came from working class background from England, worked really hard, didn't have any money and like could provide for people by the time I hit 38. And I was like, yeah, I can take some risk now. And I think it's up to you when you can take risk. So if you can take risk at 22, go and do it. You should absolutely do it. I think when it comes to fintech specifically, compliance is a real thing now. It wasn't really as much 10 years ago, eight, five years ago. So the cost of doing business and the ability to do it, you just got to do it right. And so I'm not saying we didn't do it right, but, you know, a different era. And so... People ask, you know, what should I, should I be doing this? Should I, uh, you know, it's always a grind. There's always cycles. We're just in a tough cycle right now for building companies in my view, because money, there's a cost of money. And so that means that you're, you know, if you're a founder or an aspiring founder in the room, you're going to look at things that actually make money, which is like things with subscriptions and all those other things. And I would say this fintech as well as tech. You know, someone said this to me today earlier, it was like, you know, the surface area of opportunity in tech and fintech was thoroughly explored in 2021. Meaning, are you really going to have the idea right now after we poured tens of billions of dollars into every idea manageable, right? So it doesn't mean to dissuade you, but like there was a lot of money spent on like a ton of like kind of stupid ideas. So, so yeah, it's tough. It'd be tough right now. All right. So... Do we have any questions from the room? Hi, you mentioned that Curd has the best technology across the board. So I was wondering, have you guys thought about exploring SaaS and taking your technology and selling it to like the major banks? Yeah, it's a good question. So the way we've built is a core within a core. If you know anything about banks, there's no point in talking to them about swapping out their core. It take, you know, sales cycles, five, seven, 10 years. FAS, Jack Henry got them tied up forever. And then no one in that bank wants to do it really, right? And so we have a unique position and we have been asked by, I won't name them, but big networks who work with us who have said, hey, this would be really cool if you could put this core within a core within the bank because all we need is an FBO and then we can start ledgering ourselves and then start, and we have a CST tool that they can check out all this other stuff and banks can immediately start offering all the products that we have. So 
Yes, we have thought about it pretty deeply. We're trying to be focused right now. I think that was the other thing. Maybe back to your other question. What would you do now? Just focus on one, like focus on your main thing. When there's free money in the world, you can focus on a million things. And people did. But when there's cost to money, I think it means you have to be absolutely focused. And for us right now, until we're profitable, which we are not, we're going to focus on this consumer thing. But we have the ability to do exactly that. If someone was uh, mentioning about uh, you know, everyday lives of uh, households and individuals, uh, you know, before fintech came to the scene, uh, change in any meaningful way, right? And I think you can point to some things like, uh, for example, overdraft fees, etc., that have gone away as kind of secondary effects. But if you look at kind of the fundamental metrics of how much uh, financial wellness or debt. Uh, yeah, folks are in, those numbers seem to have gone down, arguably, than up. I mean, uh, I guess it's a big pitch for uh, stay away the fact that, <laughs> that I happen to be the liability off. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to have you come in. Awesome. Yeah, nice pitch. So I think the data you want to pick apart is you got to pick apart those two things. One is, have we improved the lives of everyday Americans? And so look at the Fed data for unbanked. Look at that data from the last 10 years and tell me where it was when we started or eight years ago, where it is today. So 50% of our growth in 2018 was people who'd never had a bank account or a prepaid card, right? So now they do. Now they're in the system. Now they're building credit. So look at the unbanked data. It is about a third of where it was, right? So we've fundamentally changed the landscape. Also, that opportunity is a little bit lower, right? So there's still millions of people, but I think we've done a great job along with our competitors, Chime and, and, and uh, all the others. When it comes to credit, what you're saying, th- remember the people that we're banking pretty much don't qualify for credit, but I agree with you, credit and consumer credit because of the Fed's fastest raising in forever, five and a quarter percent in a year, 525 basis points is absolutely ruining the household, right? And so if you had a car payment, a credit card, a mortgage that was variable or rent, which is most people in this room, you're going to be in some trouble, right? And so you're draining your, if you, if you have savings, you're like, well, I've got to tighten this up and maybe not spend so much. But we're talking about the vast majority of Americans who are just living paycheck to paycheck and using that credit to smooth things over. And so, yeah, I think there's some problems right now, but I would point the finger at inflation. And if you ask Milton Friedman, he says inflation is exclusively a government problem. The government spent and printed too much money. So if you want to blame them, I'm with you. The target demographic that you have for current is very specific. So when you think about growth, would you focus on more customer acquisition or capturing the customer lifecycle beyond that age that you're targeting? Yeah, it's a good question. We've actually kind of matrixed it out a little bit right now. So we acquired people who are pretty young. So imagine acquiring teenagers at the beginning. You got a lot of 17-year-olds and their parents, right? Then we went full checking account, 18 to 35. We've got a lot of 21 to 24-year-olds. We've just launched this build card, which is credit building without, you know, without doing anything too hard. Average age is like 31 to 34, somewhere there. So we've aged up on our new cohorts. So it's product-led life cycle because the people we've acquired at 17 get a full account then get uh, a credit building uh, card so we're also servicing their needs as they age into their cohorts but at the same time we're using products to lead our growth strategy as well so we've typically had demographic differentiation to compared to other people so we've been far younger the average age i don't know if anyone's from chime or vara but the average age of those companies i hear is in the 40s and ours is just in the 30s and so 
hence the YouTuber TikTok situation. Thank you very much. I think we kind of went far enough without mentioning it, but where do you see generative AI working in tech and just the AI in general? Are you with Andreessen? <laughs> no, I, I, no, I'm actually at Google. Oh, there you go. Yeah, well, you guys got kind of forced into this game a little bit, right? OpenAI forced, because you guys had this for a while and it was kind of not shelved, but not public. And they forced you into a, a commercialization of, of what you had. The reason why I ask if he's Andreessen is they led our last round series D. And as you know, if you're on Twitter or X or whatever it's called, you'll notice that there is only one game in town now, right? It's only AI. I think for us, I think from a high level, I'm squinting a little bit at AI at its current valuation versus it's a typical, you know, you PV all the value straight away. Everyone makes all their money, or at least the traders do. And then you pop that bubble and then eventually you go to the what's it trough of disillusionment over a few years and then it comes back up. I saw this several times with crypto. I think this time will be no different with NVIDIA and all these other you know companies. It doesn't mean that AI won't eventually be the thing we promised, we were promised right now. It just may, might take some time. I think from a near-term point of view, it's a cloud play, meaning there are four or five cloud providers and only they will make the most amount of money and it will be a way of you utilizing a cloud, right? So we're GCP, by the way, so happy customers. And so Vertex and all this other stuff, we've started implementing ourselves, like super easy. You don't have to train anything, it's pre-trained, Google pays for everything. And then you use your data if it's nice and clean to like work out how to use AI in your business. And so there's gonna be a ton of experimentation, including our company right now, but I don't see it, like our cost basis for things like heavy OPEX, it's not that high as a tech firm. And so, cause it's generative AI, you're LLMs and you're you know, talking to people who are not real people. Well then CS, MX are natural places. Maybe there's some business in, uh, insights and intelligence. I think BI is gonna fundamentally change. And I think that's where the saving is, but I don't, this AGI thing, I mean, I don't see it yet, not yet. I guess it relates a little bit to your comment on starting to build in crypto early, a lot of people are probably going to be disappointed because it might be a bit too early. We don't know exactly where it's going to lead. Hey, I. Yeah, I think there is some use to it. I mean, it's phenomenal. If you've got like a non-standard question, instead of Googling the text box, you ask Bard, it can pull multiple sources and answer the question for you. I can't remember what I was asking the other day, but it was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And maybe it changes search fundamentally. Maybe that's like what's going to happen. But AI, I think, is a productivity thing that will save most companies 5 to 10%, but it's not going to be 50 or 60% yet, I think. And also this idea of danger of AI and we've got to regulate it. That sounds a lot like regulatory capture to me. You know, when you like built it and you're like, yeah, what we should do is like close the door here, guys, because it's super dangerous, but we're good. Right. We'll license it. So, I mean, like that stinks, right? And Elon kind of said the same thing. I was like, come on, man. Like, you know, we played this game before. So... Yeah, you even last week we were in SF and we met with one of the top fintech leaders and he was telling us how, you know, they're using AI, especially for customer service, and it's probably making the workforce three times more productive, but it's not eliminating any job. It's just ever making everyone more productive. I, th I think that's a good point. For MX is obvious, but the, as we just mentioned, but for engineers, your best engineers can be sort of 10x better or 100x better, which is crazy, right? Like these, some people can like really code a lot, lot quicker. So iteration and speed to product development, 
not that engineering is really the biggest laggard, really. It's normally the execs and everyone deciding to sign off on stuff or risk or something, compliance. So yeah. legal. So if we can get those AI'd up, that would be phenomenal. But yeah, I think generally some of these things, you're not firing people because of it yet. Not yet. So I think we have maybe one more question. Hey, my name is Linsky. I'm part of the world. I'm from San Francisco. <laughs> and, uh, I hear uh, a lot of questions from both sides. Well, 2023 really sucked. So, you guys see uh, the perspective of both uh, founders and investors uh, on the startup scene. Uh, so, are there any hope? <laughs> I'm the wrong person now because, okay, I'll, I'll put my macro hat on quickly. Is that there's a, well, obviously, there's a lot of messed up things happening right now in the Middle East and the world and all this other stuff. And could that translate to, you know, significant problems for the world? Absolutely, right? And so I, I don't think you can look at hope for the world and everything working out without actually having my eye on what's going on. There is a potential for like, and I think this is a very technical market thing, but if you look at the reverse repo and open market operations of what the Fed are doing, they're trying to drain liquidity pretty quickly and they continue to do this even with the backdrop of what's happening in the Middle East. And that says to me that they're trying to kind of create a crash here. So I think they're trying to get it over and done with before the election cycle. And if I was to be, you know, facetious is the right word, maybe, you know, maybe the incumbent White House could print some money and buy some votes into 24. So we'll just have to wait and see what's going on there. Right. Because that I think that's a really big thing. And they can do that. Believe it or not, the Fed can that they can literally pull the drain on liquidity, banks stop lending, everyone st- seizes up. And then you get a, a rollover on, on the long end, and then you get equity sold off. That's kind of what's happening. When it comes to the, the ecology of VCs, I think the, the short end is pretty good. You know, seed A, I think it's the crossover to growth is still broken from what I've heard. And so, and the IPO market is out, right? We opened the door for three minutes and we slammed it shut. <laughs> It was over. <laughs> so, you know, watch Carver. I know that's, a, is, is Carver a New York company? Uh, it might be. Anyway, so food tech. So watch Carver's unlock when the lockup period comes out in December or whatever. So I think the IPO market's kind of closed, slam shut again, which means that growth equity is closed, which means the crossover BC, CD is probably not great right now. We need the IPO market. We need Stripe, you know, to go out. We need, you know, some of these bigger names to go out. Uh, to, to make sure the whole funnel is an ecology. It's, a, it's a, an escalator, right? There's no point in building a company today if you cannot uh, exit liquidity later on. And so I think we just need to repair that mechanism uh, as soon as possible. So as soon as you see that, if you're just starting out today, don't worry about it. Average age of a company IPO is like seven to nine years. You're going to be fine, right? You're fine. But if you're a Series C company or a B company, you're like, all right. two more years to like work out where this liquidity is coming from right thanks for tuning in i hope you enjoyed this great episode with Stuart, ceo of current if you want more interviews make sure to subscribe follow and leave a review on apple Podcasts, spotify or whatever you get your shows it helps and means a lot And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armas.